Welcome back to season four of the Disciples Made podcast, six trends that are the least likely yet most necessary trends we must see in disciple making over the next 10 years. My name is Brian Phipps, founder of Disciples Made, and I'll be your host for this season. The topics we are discussing this season are critical, which is why we're asking some of the world's most effective disciple makers to join in to the conversation. And it's our hope that you're going to do something more than just listen to these podcasts. We hope you will hear them and then pray and discern what next steps you and your team, if you have one, need to take in order to help bring these trends into a reality. With that said, let's get ready for the next conversation. This fourth conversation is going to be challenging. The trend we want to see is loving my enemy becoming greater than unfriending my enemy. Should be a fun, fun conversation. Unfriending my enemy doesn't really need much of an intro, not in our cancel culture. It's kind of amazing to me that we live in a day when there's actually language to describe the nature of our tendency to cancel people out that don't agree with us. Cancel culture is choosing to disassociate from people publicly due to an offense. And the trend that's happening that has to change is that the nature of a legitimate offense is becoming more and more opaque. The more opaque, the more cancels. The more cancels, the more we fail to engage in real conversation that needs to happen in order to lead to greater wisdom and unity. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. Always pursue reconciliation. Always want the best for everyone, even those who have hurt you. Jesus was absolutely countercultural in this. He modeled it with his own death and resurrection. It's something that we can do as well. It's something that we can grow into. It's challenging. It's complicated. I look forward to this conversation. Let's tune in. Welcome, friends. It's so good to uh, welcome back uh, Kevin Harris and Carrie Lattiser. Really appreciate you guys coming back and uh, being a part of several episodes here. And it's great to welcome today uh, Will Mancini, uh, Future Church, and many other things. So I've had a long time uh, fandom of Will. So I just wanted to say how big the vision frame and the unique stuff has been for me personally and shaping kind of how, you know, I've stepped out of leading a local congregation and doing this thing called Disciples Made. I remember the first time we met, showed you a picture of my vision frame. So thanks for being here. And uh, tell us just a little bit about who you are, your ministry and uh, what made you take time out of your busy schedule to join us for this? Yeah, thanks so much, Brian. Well, um, I've, the last 20 years I've done church consulting is kind of my core thing, but um, I consider myself a ministry entrepreneur. I've started several organizations. And right now, um, uh, post-COVID, I founded an organization called the Future Church Company that um, really is an ecosystem of processes and tools 
that help the church uh, recover the movement Jesus started. And we deliver that through three um, brands. One is the unique brand you mentioned, gospel-centered life design. The other is through Pivot, which does kind of disciple-making design consulting with church teams. And the other is Denominee, which uh, helps uh, multi-churches, networks, and denominations think kind of through the paradigm shifts of, uh, you know, becoming more movemental and and helping uh, really those leaders to add value to local churches. So um, love what Disciples Made is all about. And just, you know, I think our hearts deeply resonate with the need today for moving beyond program church to, you know, the, the essence of Jesus's mission and just trying to figure out and wrestle through and forge through what that looks like in our cultural moment. So, so, so great to be, be with you and couldn't, couldn't be more excited for this conversation and just kicking up some dust for, uh, for church leaders. I love it. Well, let's kick it up. The uh, most necessary trend. Yeah. We're talking about the six uh, least likely, but most necessary trends we have to see in disciple making over the next 10 years. And to, this one's a hot button uh, for me. This one makes my stomach kind of churn a little bit. The trend that we've been seeing is this unfriending uh, of enemies uh, and where Jesus said to love my enemies. So we're hoping that the new trend, loving my enemies, will become greater than unfriending uh, my enemies. Let's just start with the question, is this a top 10 most necessary. Why or why not? And I'll start with you, Carrie, if you don't mind uh, jumping in for us. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would say for sure this is the top 10, maybe top five, maybe top three. It's so prevalent right now in this cultural moment. Uh, I think it reveals a lot about uh, some of the ways that we've fallen short in our discipleship in the church. So I will tend to overtake responsibility for these things, right? Instead of blaming them on people like, man, how have we failed them or where have we missed in our discipleship efforts to truly equip people to live into the ways of Jesus. So this is a glaring one, in my opinion, that has been illuminated in this last season. Um, I have a lot of thoughts, but my answer is yes. Yeah, I'm with you. All right. Thanks, Kevin. uh, What would you add to that? Gosh, not much. Um, But one thing I would say is I didn't really think it was a top 10. And uh, as I was thinking about this over the last week or so, and that's probably because my, I'll admit in full disclosure, my worldview is probably a little small. And then this past week, I was somewhat struck with a challenging conversation at home with my 15 year old about a conversation they had in their school chapel. And I was confronted face-to-face with the realities of this dynamic that Carrie's talking about, that there is a shifting world. There's a a narrative that's going on that is is really challenging. And it wasn't until I sort of had to lean fully into a conversation around, how do you even define what an enemy is? What does that even look like? Um, that caused me to go, yeah, it is, it is a top 10. If we're not aware of it and, and thinking through how to approach conversations, it, it could be the thing that, that and, and I'm sure Will's got that context on this too, it could be the thing that will make or break the future of the church. So it, it's, it's back. It's back in my top 10. That's significant. Will, do you also agree that this is a top 10? Absolutely. Yeah, I think one one angle I would look at this from and and, and actually just share a 
moment of repentance I've had in the last couple of years on, uh, you know, thinking through, particularly in the, in the future church book, we really look at what, you know, what are the, what are the, what are the dynamics at work propagate that continue to um, enable uh, a limited paradigm of disciple making in the church. And so at first this may sound unrelated, but it just immediately connects um, um, the third law of real church growth. We articulate is the law of love and the law of love, I think is where, where the overlap is with this. So it, it's the idea that real church growth is validated by unity, not numbers. So I just want to add this mm. paradigm, paradigmatic kind of observation that when we think in the church that we're winning, we're usually, we're literally looking at the programmatic, you know, the volume, the number of, you know, people rolling through our programs. And this may seem unrelated to this principle, but I think it's just right on, Brian, in the sense that that inflates a sense that God is at work and that we're, we're doing, like we're literally looking at a billboard saying, yep, God's at work because people are coming through. And I call that a plus one mentality. Like it's, you know, plus one, plus one, plus one, God's at work. Where this principle you're speaking of around enemies, it's an equals one, not a plus one. It's like, how do we show this brilliant, as gospel people, this brilliant love and unity um, both within the church, just without, and, it, and it's like, that's, I mean, it's so clear in scripture. That's the billboard that God sent his son, the love that we have, the, the unity that we have for one another. So here's my confession for, <clears throat> for, for, I don't know, since my moment of repentance a couple of years ago, you know, I would have, if I would have, if you would have said, well, what would you have wanted for every church you're serving and working with? You know, would you wanted to have more people in worship next Sunday, or would you rather have a more unified people, a more unified family, a more unified congregation next Sunday. And I have to confess, I would always have wanted for my, for my churches, more people. And now I, now I repent, like, no, I don't think that's what, what, what God wants, what Jesus is looking at. Look, let's look at this, this depth of love that, that connects to this idea uh, that, that we've just seen the church torn, torn to shreds through the, you know, the, the racial divides and the political skirmishes that uh, the post COVID world just escalated. Can I add something to what Will just said there? Absolutely. So I could be really naive here, but I have some hope rooted in this because one of my like greatest burdens is the witness of the church in the West, right? Like to the watching world, how we are perceived. And so in this particular stream of thinking, it's like, if we can't even figure out how to love one another who think differently or have different experiences or vote differently or spend money differently, you know, within the church, how on earth is the watching world going to think that we would accept them or embrace them or love them, you know, to be a part of this. But where it ties into what Will just said is I, I think I'm naive enough to believe that if we can get past this attractional church sort of scoreboard and attractional church model, I think if we could live this out, we could become the most attractive community on the face of the planet that people would be so compelled to want to be a part of. And so like when you talk about plus one or addition versus multiplication, you know, if we figure this out, this particular challenge, when it comes to discipleship, I think we would become the most attractive community on the face of the planet. So there's so much opportunity if we could really make this shift. Uh, Carrie, I'm glad you mentioned that word scoreboard, because that's what I heard. And what Will was saying is we're changing, you know, how, what, what a score looks like. We're clarifying that win. 
uh, we're saying that this is more important. And uh, that's a hot pursuit. So the question then comes, you know, what does it take to get there? Uh, the way we've been asking it this whole season is, is this a least likely trend, you know? And if so, what makes it least likely uh, that we're going to have to overcome? So like what's in the way of unity becoming not just an element or the primary element on the scorecard, but uh, actually obtaining that score if it gets there. So like both of those questions, what's, what's in the way? Well, I'm grateful for Will's work in this area, so I'm excited to hear what he's seen with other churches. One of the things, even when I was thinking about this conversation that immediately comes to mind is some of the ways that our discipleship has um, missed out on like emotional intelligence type of discipleship, right? At, At least the faith tradition I came from was like, okay, if you're broken, Jesus just fixes it, right? Like whatever wounds you have, whatever your family of origin is, whatever. And and we didn't get into understanding those things. And I I think when the apostle Paul talks about the renewing of our mind, part of that is the renewing of our paradigms. It's letting go of the paradigms we held and taking on a kingdom oriented paradigm and our emotional health is a huge part of that. So when I think super practically about how do I love my enemy instead of unfriend them, differentiation is a huge part of that, not needing agreement or alignment or approval, right? Like, let's talk about what love is and how we enter into that uh, with a sense of emotional intelligence, not, not needing somebody else to agree or endorse or affirm. I think if we could figure out how to engage with people we don't endorse with, or we don't endorse, like that's just the beginning of trying to make the shift. So that's one thing that I see when it comes to discipleship is really around like a fully orbed, fully integrated model of discipleship that includes emotional health. It's one trend we could take. So good. Will, what would you add there? That is good. And I couldn't agree more. I, you know, I think there, there's not, there's not a lack of quoting great commandment out there, you know, like, so it's just, so I want to just kind of name this strange, like, you know, we still have copies of God's word. We still have all kinds of prayer practicing happening out there. It's like, what really keeps the everyday disciple, you know, and, and, you know, we could, we could talk about um, the problem of, uh, you know, the, the metaphor, you know, the Barna group uses the faith and exile metaphor. We're in Babylon and we're being discipled by our screens, you know, digital and digital Babylon. But, you know, so I, it's like, what, how do you systematically think through this? What's a core issue? And I'm going to go back. I'm going to go to a little unexpected place on this one. And I, I believe there's a core issue. I think it's the imagination of the church leader. And, you know, it's, is you could almost, as we are, as you work through these trends, Brian, that are just so well articulated, again, couldn't agree more. I look at, you can look at them, or, you know, as we look at this one, we're looking at it through the lens of the disciple. And, and I, I tend to, I tend to look at the exact same truth that you're naming through the lens of the church leader and through the lens of the design of the church. And so I believe it's the greatest limitation to our disciple making fruitfulness as a church, I believe is the imagination of the church leader. And it comes back to that scorecard. So it's like, why are, why doesn't the system and the people, the leaders in the system model this? Like, why don't, like this, you read scripture, this shouldn't be like this massive breakthrough topic or like some special secret. It's like, are you kidding me? Really? Like we, 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 we love that poorly. Like, why is that? And, um, 
I, I guess I would say I, I, I trust people's hearts. I don't trust the paradigm. I think we're, we've been working a paradigm that validates, maybe to put it this way, it's been said we miss our goal, not because of obstacles, but because of a clear path to a lesser goal. And I think we just have Ooh, propped up on, so many lesser goals. Say that one again. That's, that's big. It's, it's such a great thought. It's uh, not mine um, originally. It's, it's this idea that we miss our goal, not because of obstacles, but because of a clear path to a lesser goal. And I think our churches are built around the lesser goals, you know, that I would associate with program church. And so I just want to highlight that we have the power of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the people of God. We have the word of God. So there's something keeping us from seeing this as just the basic good work of, you know, the, the, the love, love of the enemy. Thanks for going back and saying that again, because that's, what that says is it's not that there's really something significant in our way other than ourselves. And then we'll come back and ask what then, you know, what now or so what is a question that we'll continue to ask, but I want to hear from Kevin and, and see like, is this a least likely and, and why? Yeah. As I was thinking about just your, your, uh, the idea of what is it that gets in the way of this? I think it's two things. I think it is, access to information and lack of biblical knowledge, which by the way is me pot calling the kettle black on this. And that, and what I mean by that is even if I look at an isolation of my conversations I've had this past week, I could go online and I could choose any topic and I could get very well validated conversation about very wide views of, of a topic. But what I but what I didn't what I didn't know going into it was what the Bible has already well talked about, what the Bible has already clearly and carried has clearly articulated about the idea of both loving our enemy, understanding sort of the some of the the gray lines of, of pick your topic and understanding how do you navigate some of those things. And so just, and as I've done a lot of, a lot of work with um, churches and men over the, over the last gosh, six or seven years, I do think it's sort of that idea of, you know, we know that Bible knowledge is really low right now, culturally. And I think part of that is because we seem to be leaning more into what what everybody else has to say about a certain topic and we can get a thousand different answers which creates in my mind more confusion and so i, I think there's a lot of that going on I also think, I think there's a proximity issue i think we don't want to get close to people who may live in those um in those gray areas and so if my view of looking at the world is you know, just by the people around me. And if I look at all the people around me and they look and act and think exactly like me, then I probably am not going to have an expanded view because I'm not getting close to people who may look at the world differently. And I think proximity is another big issue that we're facing. Yeah, the, the echo chamber, nobody's used that term yet, but the, you described it. The echo chamber is real. And it's a it's it's a seemingly safe place to be, 
because you're hearing things that you agree with. You're hearing things that you've been told from a spiritual authority or the things that are Jesus-y and the other people are anti-Christy. And so you stay in that echo chamber and you really miss the opportunity to grow and move forward. Um, Well, okay. So I think we're saying, yeah, it's a top 10 necessary or top six. It's a, it's a, it's, there's going to be a real challenge to get there. Um, If there's a path toward it, now, if there's a path toward this trend, what are the major components along that? And what in particular might your ministries be doing to help this trend become a reality? Carrie, let's go back to you. Sure. Uh, well, I, I mean, I'm really grateful for what's been said here. The, there's a model issue. You know, it's totally what Will is highlighting for us. And I completely agree with that. And you mentioned even the social media echo chambers that we all have sort of found ourselves living within where things are reinforced that we already believe. And I do think part of that model issue is what set us up for that. Like Kevin is talking about proximity. How do you listen to people who believe something different than you? If you were taught in your faith tradition that the point of this was sort of a list of rules and regulations and then insulate yourself from this bad, evil world, right? I think there's a reframe, we'll set of the imagination or of what the mission even is. What is it we're actually trying to accomplish here? What is the charge that comes from Jesus for what it means to be his body? And I think we've got to move past this like, rules and regulations way of, of talking and teaching that. And one of the ways that we're doing that at our church is talking more about what does it look like to, once you are reconciled to Jesus, to live into that call, to become a reconciler, right? Like we now partner with God in the redemption and the restoration of the world. So it's not like I want to beat you with a stick or provide shame to move away from certain behaviors, which certainly that's a part of our discipleship and transformation. But there's such a robust invitation to join Christ in his redemptive and restorative work. That's what also we are trying to move towards. And so we have really practical things that we're doing as a church to on the emotional health side, right? Trying to equip people um, to listen. We've done some of Pete Scazzaro's work, um, a couple of years ago, there was a, a conference, and I only know about this because of social media. I wasn't connected to it, but there was a, a women's conference that a church hosted, and they they wanted a diversity of speakers to come teach at it, and they invited an African-American woman to come and talk about some of the, the issues with racial dynamics. And this is pre-pandemic, so this is pre-kind of the recent illumination of these dynamics in our culture. And she started talking about the challenges and areas for unity and reconciliation, but kind of what's at stake for that. And some of the white women in the room started getting up and walking out while she was talking. And so um, there was all sorts of kind of blow up about this in, in on Twitter and, you know, other places. But I remember saying, I was actually teaching that weekend about longer tables, shorter fences. That was the topic of my message. And so I talked about this situation and said, how can we love people who think or believe or experience the world differently if we can't even listen to them? And we started taking very seriously this idea of what does it mean to listen? How do you have enough emotional health to engage with people who believe differently than you? And then again, back to that original, like, what is our job here on earth? Is it to sort of live these safe, insulated lives that maybe look different from the world, but 
possibly not in a really compelling way, or is it to, by God's spirit, join Christ in the redemption and restoration, which requires active participation and requires that we learn how to not just love our friends or our neighbors or our family members, but love our enemies. You know, it flips those paradigms on their head in a different way than my church tradition taught me. So we're trying to incorporate these into how we disciple people. Really good, Jerry. I was going to just practically talk about our, our ministry for a second. And um, so if you rewind the tape of our ministry, we were founded by a suburban, and I say this in all transparency um, and lovingly, we were founded by a, a suburban, upper middle class white man who had a burden and a desire to minister to men who were a season of life behind him, who happened to more than likely look like middle-class suburban white men. And as that, as our ministry grew, we, when we moved away from his dining room table, we moved into other churches that looked very much like middle-class suburban, predominantly white churches. And over time, the unintended consequence of that is we, um, programmatic, we programmatically began to sort of create a ministry that just looked and felt like that. And so what we did just uh, two weeks ago, uh, I just have really felt burdened as our ministry transitioned from founder led to, um, I, I don't want to say Kevin led, but uh, Kevin led, I guess, is how do we make our ministry look more like what heaven's going to look like? And so I pulled a group of leaders together last week. I've, I've tried to hire some folks who have helped broaden my, um, my worldview. And I brought a bunch of leaders together last week to say, how do we make um, the future of radical mentoring look like a more uh, unified, multicultural, multi-generational ministry? And so we are like baby steps into this conversation. But it is so exciting and has been so enlightening just personally for me to be able to get to see and hear and understand from a lot of different perspectives, which has helped me rethink what, what we may need to look like going forward. So we're in the middle of it. We, you know, we're just, it, none of it was done out of anything other than lack of proximity to other people. So it sounds as if that uh, imagination we'll discuss early on in his comments is uh, is what's already been happening in you, and that's just beautiful. Uh, will, what do you think um, about these things? Uh, what what needs to happen, and and what are Future Church and and your your influence yeah. doing to try to make this happen? Yeah, yeah, I think what one of the things uh, my my favorite portion of scripture is between Luke 8, 1 and, and Luke uh, 12, 1. And in those chapters, I really believe you have a biblical theology of movement. And one of the things we, 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 we are trying to do at the Future Church Company is bring that biblical theology of, you know, of just, it, I, when I say movement, it's just the, ba you know, just doing the basics, love being one of them. And so when you look at, just want to draw an observation from Luke 8, 1, 9, 1, 10, 1, 11, 1. And, you know, Luke is actually giving us a kind of a chronological snapshot 
Luke 8, 1 is Jesus doing ministry and 12 are watching. In Luke, in Luke 9, 1, he gives power and authority to the 12 and then sends them. Then you have a 6x multiplication. In Luke 10, 1, he gives power and authority to 72 others and he's multiplying them. And, and just, I want to note that like, if we were to look at Jesus's church size culture, we'd be pretty underwhelmed, you know, in, in, in the sense of what the new permission era of the eighties and nineties propped up is like, this is good. This is good, successful church. Cause after three years of ministry, Jesus church, I believe is about 120, you know, acts one the people in the upper room. I and mean, these are the people Jesus has poured his life into. It's very clearly documented. Um, as is a whole host of times where Jesus says, look, don't tell them I healed you. Or in John 6, 66, look, you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood. You can't have eternal life. And the crowds go crazy. They're gone. Like they're just, they're done. And his disciples are even wobbling. Like, can we believe and follow this guy? That was, you know, cannibalistically crazy teaching, right? So like Jesus does not build his ministry on the crowds. And it's so important because you can't model love from the state. It can't reproduce. Um, love what Howard Hendricks, mentor of mine, used to say, you can impress people from the distance, but you can only impact them up close. This, we, we need a model ministry that's going to just enable us. So if you notice, in, in when, when at, look, at the, look at what happens right in the multiplication from 12 to 72. And you got Peter, James, and John dealing with their ego issues in Luke 9, 51 to 56. And so Jesus is working on, on ego and pride. But you have these amazing snapshots of just the parable of Good Samaritans in there. This this master epic picture that becomes a mirror, that becomes a window for everyday life, like, you know, with this neighbor thing and this love challenge. But you have like, right, like right as the 72 are coming back, Jesus is going to say, hey, remember, don't rejoice that the, the, the demons are, you know, obeying you and, and, and this my authority is working. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. And right after that, you know, we have the, the, the this, this Pharisee, questioning Jesus as he lets this woman who just is so richly loving, lavishly loving her savior because of the depth of her forgiveness. And Jesus just, I mean, he's laying down. I mean, he's just love bombs, like just exploding our imagination around it. But here's the big deal. His model of a ministry enabled him <laughs> just to do the deep work with his core team. So I'd say to church leaders listening, where are you doing the deep work with your core team? Like, it's like, it's really a very doable, imitatable pattern. And again, trust the heart. Don't trust the paradigm. Maybe, maybe we're putting so much energy into the, the broad, you know, programmatic expressions of ministry that we're, that we're not attending to the deep work, you know, in, in ways that, that reproduce it. That's, that's so key. I think I agree wholeheartedly with you. Uh, my assumption coming out of seminary was if I taught a faithful sermon on that, people would get it and exercise it. But what they really do need to see is me uh, making choices, walking into conflict uh, with much grace and many questions and two ears and one mouth, that kind of thing. Uh, Carrie, you had some thoughts you wanted to share. Yeah, well, as Will was sharing that, I just kept thinking about like those same passages are where Jesus reserves some of his harshest words for religious leaders and religious people that withhold love, 
right? Or that are committed to systems or structures that leave people out or, you know, so it's just a powerful reminder, just like you're saying how important that deep work is and not just that we teach it, but that we model it and engage people in it. Um, one of the really practical ways that we're trying to do this again, the, um, there's a topic that we're meeting around and it's this idea of racial reconciliation. But one of the, the byproducts of these conversations is that we are helping people learn how to experience doing the deep work. So we're doing this um, experience called Undivided and it, it comes out of a church in Cincinnati. Uh, Crossroads was part of birthing it, but really it's, it's multiple weeks of diving deep into the history, the data, the experience of people of color in our country. And then also talking about a theology, like with a fully orbed gospel, our active participation in righting wrongs or building bridges or pursuing unity, you know, that's a huge part of this topic. And so people are just, their eyes are being open to what it looks like to engage in this deep work. And they're coming in. I mean, all of us come into these conversations, right? With walls or with challenges, with hurdles. And so we're just really practically helping people learn to listen and hold space that somebody's experience could be quite different than their experience and then really wrestle with and what is my part to play and to this point of what we're sharing pursuing love and healing for my brothers and sisters pursuing love and healing for what's broken in our community pursuing love and healing for what's broken in the world and so that's so much of what jesus model of ministry was and we're trying to say okay how do we teach around this how do we have a fuller definition of the gospel. So not just salvation as the finish line, right? Like crossing a line of faith, but then beyond that, what does a fully orbed gospel mentality look like? And how do we live into that? And uh, we're just, we're trying to broaden our imagination and transition our models in such a way that, I mean, we're, we're stumbling through it at times, but that we're trying to learn to live this out. I'm going to throw a, a question out that isn't in, wasn't in like the the pre notes here. We've, we've talked about, um, we've talked about, we need emotional maturity. We need a new end zone of unity over numbers or, or, you know, the, that kind of thing. And um, we need to have intentional instruction on what that looks like. What, what makes, I had a, a weird uh, experience a couple of weeks ago. I just, I, followed the trend on social media of taking a picture of when I got my vaccine. And I, I know that a person uh, after making a, a, a sad comment on my, on my picture uh, unfriended me. And, and this isn't about that. This is just trying to set it up. Like there's, there's a lot of different conversations that happen that cause this cancel type of deal. There's, there's race, there's gender, there's, vaccine or not vaccine mask not mask but what causes a person do you think uh to just click the unfriend and what in that moment could let's let's just kind of take it away from the church leader for a second i know it all gets modeled there and those church leaders have to play for the long game on this and it, and it does start with modeling it and not on the stage necessarily but but in relationships and trusting that that discipleship thing spreads. But what does a person have to do in that moment when they're thinking of unfriend to choose to follow the Jesus way and reach out and extend? Uh, Will, how about you first? 
But I'll start by saying I did want to talk to Kevin about the way he did that. I mean, I thought that was I thought that was pretty. Just kidding, bro. Just kidding. Um, you know, no, it's it's such a serious topic. You know, the 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 here's the here's the here's the little drumbeat that went in my mind as you're describing that identity because of story. And, you know, if, if you, you know, what does Jesus do when Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan, what he's doing, he's telling a mini fictitious story that is, is just a software upgrade in our imagination. And, and, and it, you know, it's so, you know, I, I, I the, the longer, you know, looking and just from an individual standpoint, um, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I was just, want to share my story on this. Um, there was one time in my life where Luke six, the Holy spirit just made me face to face. You, you, you must not, you must love this person who has enemy like behavior toward you. And it was, it's a little bit, again, a little bit, um, um, vulnerable to share this, but I, you know, about 18 years ago, I went through a divorce, was married 10 years and my wife left the marriage. And, um, in the, in the process of going through the legal stuff and, you know, from my vantage point, I feel like I've been blindsided. I feel like I've been attacked and the Holy spirit, you know, literally in the heat of like, how am I going to respond to this is like, she, she may not want to be your wife, but she's the mother of your children. Like, you know, you, this is enemy like behavior and like in, in that, in the tension of this person who's, you know, you thought you're going to spend the rest of your life with the most intimate relationship you have. And now all of a sudden you're, you're, you're in a, you're in a battle zone and the Holy spirit reminds me of these words, Jesus. And it's like, at that point, who am I, what story am I living? And I did, I'm, I'm going, I'm telling that because in that moment, you know, ultimately we have to decide whether we're, whether we're, what is the largest story that we're, that we're, that we're just in the subconscious playing out. And if I'm a victim in that story, man, it's game over. I cannot love. If I have, if fear is the guiding thing in my story, I cannot love. And so I look at, I'm saying that from that moment of why does someone do the unclick? I believe it's because they are, they are reinforcing a story and an identity and it, it, it's powerful. It's powerful reinforcement of my identity because doggone it. Like, this is my story. This is who I am. I thought Brian was better than that. Here he is. Here he is succumbing to whatever, you know, and, and I, I, you know, and I have to make this declaration that reinforces an identity and a story. Anyway, it's like, I, you know, it's ah, tough. It's tough stuff, but I, you know, let's, let's like, I want to let's Jesus is inviting every man and woman into a larger story. And so let's, let's help, let's preach the good news of this larger story to one another and, and take those baby steps when we can, you know, um, man, I, that word identity is truly at the core of all of this and identity determines story. 
and living into the story helps you grow in your Christ-centered identity if you trust his his paths. So, Kevin, I've I've read your emails that I get uh, on a nice regular basis, and oftentimes this word identity is brought up uh, out of the things that you're doing at Radical Mentoring. Uh, what there did Will say that uh, you resonate with, or or what else would you add as far as why would somebody click that button and what could they, what kind of work could they do uh, uh, just partnering with Jesus in that moment to choose a different path? Yeah, I think you click the unfriend button because it's really easy and you hope that you don't get found out. You happen to be smart enough to know and figure out who it was that did it. Um, I'll just, I, I keep going back to my, my worldview of about a week and a half now, but um, our, our school had the school my boys go to had a really hard conversation around gender and the uproar that came out of all sides and parents and kids and the mess that was created. I mean, I think that's part of it. People don't want to live in that messy middle. It's, it's just really easy to say, I quit. No, you quit. Let's not have these hard conversations. And I just felt so burdened to reach out to my friend who I've known for 20 some odd years, who's the chaplain of the school and say, let's just sit down and talk about it. And, and the reality is when you go eyeball to eyeball with somebody, all the anger and the frustration, all those things, they kind of come down a little bit because you realize you're just dealing with another person. And the way I ended that conversation with him was really simple. It was like, look, I love you. I've known you for 20 years. I don't agree with maybe your theology around this issue or maybe your approach around this issue. But I also am not asking you in this particular scenario, I'm not asking you to raise my kids. I'm not dropping my kids off at school every day and saying, good luck school, go raise my kids for them and send them back to me a certain way. It was also a stark reminder to me and my wife, Susan, to go, man, we need to be praying about and aligned around these really hard issues so that our kids know how to navigate hard conversations. Because, man, they, I mean, they can cut each other off and cut each other down. It is so easy and simple for them to react in a way and so I hope my boys saw me go, I'm just going to walk into this conversation and, and just approach it with the idea of this is not a let's ruin a 20-year friendship over an issue. It's just that idea of I want to seek to understand the perspective of this other person so that I can walk away and go, gosh, I love them. None of that has changed. We just don't see eye to eye on an issue. And, and we walked away in that conversation. We laughed, we cried, we prayed together, and we hugged on the way out the door. But so many other parents in these circles, they weren't willing to have those conversations. And so my message to the people who've been calling me is like, don't let me tell you how to think about it. Don't let me give you the play-by-play -play of my conversation. Just make an appointment. Go in there and, have, and just talk, talk about it because we, but we'd rather unfriend you than, than, than seek to understand your perspective. And I think that's, that's really sad that that's where we've gotten to a place where you can just really easily go, ah, done with Brian, I'll move on to somebody else that 
you know, doesn't want to be vac- vaccinated or whatever the issue is. So Brilliant. that's how I handled it. <clears throat> well, I'm glad your son got to see that. It goes back to the modeling that we talked about before. Let's not unfriend ourselves. Let's walk into these things. Carrie, what do you, what do you, what do you have to add here? Well, there's so many things even about what you guys have both said. The idea that computers really do lower our inhibitions, right? When you're behind a screen, you can be a little bit more brave with how you're going to talk to somebody or treat somebody versus being face-to-face and eyeball-to-eyeball. There's something significant about how that played out with Kevin. As we're talking about this, there's something I want to name um, that I think is just a key distinction in this. We we have talked, I hear in a lot of circles, people talk about cancel culture, right? And the idea that like somebody does something and you're just going to write them off. And I do feel like that's quite different than a move that we have seen in call-out culture, because we have seen call-out culture play out differently in the church world, where in some instances, people have been sort of held accountable for power abuse or spiritual abuse or sexual misconduct or things like that, that they may not have been ever held accountable for if it weren't for this call out. So I don't know if I want to defend call out culture. I just want to name that that's different than cancel culture. But I read this article um, from the teaching team recently about a professor who was challenging students, college age students to call people in. And she said, love seeks to call people in instead of calling somebody out or canceling them. If you truly love somebody you're going to call them in and say, Hey, I saw this thing on social media, Brian, I saw you post about getting vaccinated. Do you, you know, here's what that triggers in me. Help me understand what it is that you think about this. Or, you know, it's quite likely somebody interpreted your personal decision as what you believe the government should or shouldn't mandate, right? Like they're in their own sort of tense um, recognition of this conversation. And so they're just applying or implying what it is that you believe about these things. So love seeks to understand and fear seeks to protect. And I think so often that cancel button is my worldview or my rightness or my decision or my belief, my story about this is right. And I need to protect that from you versus I'm going to love you and I'm going to seek to understand. And so there's a lot obviously to unpack there, but our, our brains are meaning making machines. We want to make meaning out of everything. And I have learned in my own counseling journey that in a lot of ways, that's a survival response to how we grew up. We want to make meaning. We want to tell a story. You know, I I need to be able to write somebody off who hurt me or blame them. And the reality is most of life is not black or white or right or wrong or, you know, clear cut a lot of life. And I think Jesus shows us this and how he lived is lived in the gray. And for us to truly live and love like Jesus, we have to learn how to navigate the gray and be open to being wrong or somebody believing something different and not need to reinforce sort of from a protection and a safety place that fear will protect what I believe love will seek to understand somebody who falls differently than me. Moving from calling, moving from canceling to calling out, but really kind of skipping over calling out and going calling in that that's going to make that's going to be a part of Disciples Made somewhere, somehow. I'll send you, know? you the article, Brian. So you got Please. it. Just from cancel to calling in, from calling out to calling in of people. 
that's powerful. And that language uh, is going to be extremely helpful. I think for people listening, it'll certainly be something that we take in. We're going to be doing these, uh, you know, internal conversations post these conversations here at Disciples Made. And so based upon what we learned from these disciple makers, how do we need to change? And I can tell you that's going to be a, a, a big one. So Will uh, and, and all of you, uh, you shared vulnerable things about how difficult it is to, to invite in or to go in, you know, to invite yourself into someone else's uh, office to have uh, challenging conversations. And thank you for that vulnerability that that takes an awful lot uh, to do. I'm thinking with just the few minutes that we have left on the call to, to say everybody in the, in the world, everybody listening to this podcast has those people that have hurt them, that they've, that they've either canceled uh, or have been canceled by. Uh, and if it's not a official unfriend on social media, it's, it's an unfriend in life. Um, and so we all have a nice inventory of those people. And the invitation of Jesus is to, um, is to, you know, is to go after these people and to, to offer, to love them in some way and with some communication. I'm just wondering, it's hard to do that in the moment. You know, Will, you're talking about an experience that happened years ago, so it's a little easier to process, you know, time after time. What would you say to the people who have the their top three people that they are now, you know, estranged from? What would be a great first step uh, to, to start to move toward loving an enemy. Just, we got about 30 seconds each before we're done, but what would you say? And Will, we'll start with you. You know, my first thought is that the, the highest form of love is the, is that intercession for them. So I think if you, you know, you're, you're, you know, there's no, no time or moment where that's not an applicable way. And so, you know, without anyone watching you from, from anywhere in the world, you can, put the, your concentrated focus on their best interests through, uh, through intercession. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what the smile on God's face looks like <laughs> when you're doing that. Cause it's kind of like, I really don't want to pray this, but I'm going to pray this because it's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> Carrie, what do you think? Well, certainly that changes your heart immediately to pray for someone. But the two things that came to mind for me are, to believe the best and to exercise healthy boundaries. And I will tell you, I have a family member in this category for me and candidly, they don't believe in my uh, role to serve as a pastor in ministry. Theologically, they land in a different place. And so we've had conversations about it and I'm not going to disrupt my relationship with this individual. And so we just have boundaries around like, Hey, I don't need you to endorse this part of my life. And I want to respect your belief about this. So let's have boundaries about how we're going to engage in that particular topic and then still figure out how to love one another. So believe the best about the person that's on the other side of whatever that conflict is and have healthy boundaries. If you're going to continue in relationship with them. Excellent. Kevin, you've got the last word here, brother. I just say after those two comments, donuts. <clears throat> I mean, I just think everybody loves donuts or ice cream. Maybe, I mean, maybe you just, you know, go go out and <laughs> grab a cup of coffee and a donut or an ice cream cone and sit down with somebody, understanding that 
if you go into that conversation thinking, I've got to change this person, I've got to drag them over to my side, it's disaster. If you go into that conversation saying, I want to be your friend, I want to understand where you're coming from. I want to know if you just had a bad, maybe somebody, Brian, had a bad day and they happen to be on your post in that moment when their kid got a notification because their mask was below their nose at school and they had had enough of the vaccine talk. And so they unclicked it. There you go. But to get face to face and close over ice cream or donuts makes the world a better place. Southern hospitality and Southern therapy right there. I love it, Kevin. Um, I have come to understand the gospel as the ability to move into the more that Jesus has for us. And uh, nobody's mastered loving your enemy. Seems to me that it's uh, a much more difficult path. I wouldn't say call it a task. It's a privilege that we have. Jesus gives us the capacity to forgive and to love others, to set appropriate boundaries, Carrie. I love that you said that. I want to bring that back, uh, particularly after Kevin's last comments. We can't become friends with, with everyone where there's appropriate boundaries uh, in some situations, of course. But man, to choose to love is, is to choose the Jesus way, and to choose the Jesus way always leads to more. Uh, more abundant life, more peace, uh, more joy and patience and kindness. And so I hope that today's call has been an encouragement to everybody on the call here, all, all of us participating here together. And uh, for those listening, I'm trying to imagine a world where there was no such thing as cancel. No such thing as cancel. There's always a bridge. And we and, and a world that's actually moved away from call out because that's almost like I caught you and therefore I got bigger. That's like, <laughs> that's a, it's a grade school strategy. Uh, but to be able to call in and to learn and to, and to grow that that's a world that I would be excited to see friends. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you being a part of this thing. And I look forward to uh, seeing how this thing plays out in years to come. God bless you guys. If more and more people could have conversations like that, there would be less canceling and more wisdom. How does Disciples Made prioritize this shift? By simply focusing on the gospel. Jesus is Lord. Jesus modeled loving your enemy. He brought the gospel to us who the Bible says were at enmity with him. He and the gospel, the good news, are our focus. We can only love as we've been loved, and Jesus loved us all the way. And we have integrated books into Followers Made in particular, but all the books that we have chosen teach us to surrender to Jesus, to let Him love through us in a way that we could not love others. That's what we do, but we might be doing more. I can't wait to share with you what we process as we talk about how to make this shift even more prevalent through Disciples Made. See you there.